this was so visually just obvious and atrocious and blatant in what was going on. Backpage.com is coaching sex traffickers how to post ads that, that they wouldn't have to take down. There was something different uh, with these girls. There, it's, it was, I mean, it was really, I mean, it was almost like their souls had been ripped out. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. We've got a lot to unpack for you today, and it all revolves around a website called Backpage. Now, before we get into that, I want to introduce our very special guests who have worked for several years to protect victims of Backpage. And I'm going to let turn it over to them and let them introduce themselves. So Jason and Vinny, would you both like to say hello? Sure, my name is Jason Amala. I'm a partner with Fowl Cochran Vertitis Mammal in Seattle, Washington, and I've been representing uh, abuse survivors uh, for about 20 years. Yeah, good morning. My name's Vinny Napo. I'm a lawyer in Seattle. I work at Fowl Cochran. I've been working uh, with abuse survivors for uh, a little over 10 years now, including uh, abuse survivors who were trafficked on the Backpage website. Now, As I mentioned in my intro, we have a lot to unpack today, and this is a really complicated case. So I wanna start with the very basics so that everybody has an understanding of what we're talking about. What was Backpage? When did it begin? What was it intended to be? What was it? Um, There were, you know, most major cities had these weekly newspapers, um, kind of alternative weekly newspapers, I'll say. So in Seattle, it was the Seattle Weekly, 
um, perhaps the best known um, was in New York, the Village Voice. And if you remember, and I think this they still exist, but if, if you go to went to the back pages of those of those alternative weekly newspapers, you would see ads for, uh, you know, Viagra, fake, fake Viagra, fake weed, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And, and there were also escort ads. Um, and in about, I think, 2005, um, two men, Michael Lacey and uh, uh, James Larkin, purchased uh, eventually purchased the the company that owned a bunch of these weeklies, including um, the Village Voice in New York. And shortly thereafter, they I think realized the amount of money, the revenue that's generated from the from the escort ads, and decided to create a website called Backpage.com. And that's where the name comes from, Backpage.com. It's a, it's a reference to those old back pages of those alternative weeklies. So. Um, when it started, on some level, the idea was, you know, supposed to be a classified ads, kind of like a Craigslist, um, was what it was pitched as. In reality, they quickly realized that, you know, the vast, vast majority of their revenue was from, you know, escort ads. And then, you know, we'll obviously talk about the trafficking, sex trafficking component of the escort path. And can you give us an idea of when this was started and when did it first pick up steam and become prominent? So yeah, so Backpage, as Jason mentioned, uh, they started uh, in 2005. Uh, they became pretty well known uh, from 2005 to 2010, but it was in 2010 when Craigslist, uh, after um, facing lots of um, pressure from the public and uh, prosecutors and attorney general's offices, uh, Craigslist shut down its adult services section that Backpage became uh, by far the number one leader in, in, the, in the escort, at least the online escort industry. And do you have an idea of about how much they were making annually? Yeah, I mean, even in 2008, uh, before Backpage, uh, or I'm sorry, before Craigslist had shut down, uh, I, you know, back at least according to their reporting, uh, they'd made $5 million in 2008, $11 million in 2009, uh, $29 million in 2010. But once you see Craigslist shut down in 2010, you see their revenues explode to 70 million in 2012, and then starts to go above 100 million uh, in 2013, 2014, and eventually, um, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, Backpage ultimately gets valued at around half a billion dollars uh, in 2015 when it's ultimately sold through sort of this um, kind of shell corporation transaction between uh, Larkin and Lacey and, and their CEO at the time, Carl Farrar. So it was started very openly as an adults services page, which some people might agree with, not disagree with. That's not what we're here to debate. That's what it started out as. What was actually going on and how did you all get involved? Sure. So like Vinny said, I mean, it, it when they started it, it, it was intended to be, um, you know, at least uh, ostensibly as like another Craigslist and and then it just especially uh, after Craigslist shut down, it just took off. And I mean, when Vinny talks about the revenues 
the, the vast majority of the revenues, I, I, I think it was 90% or more, um, was from the, the escort ads. And, you know, eventually what comes with that is um, child sex trafficking and, and, and then obviously adult sex trafficking as well. So what you start to see is when it really takes off, um, at least from the, the perspective of child sex trafficking, is you have parents that start, you know, their kids go missing. And for all sorts of reasons we can talk about, but you have parents starting to try to find their children. And um, that's, you know, they eventually see the pictures. And early on, especially, the pictures that came through ad, these ads are very graphic, but they would show the faces and you'd have a mom or dad out there looking for their, their child who's run away. And they'd find an ad that has their picture, you know, their 12 year old, their 14 year old uh, on the website. And so that of course leads to people going, gosh, what the heck is going on here? And you, you got a lot of attention coming to it, both from parents and obviously law enforcement, um, law enforcement out there trying to deal with trafficking and, and as you said, we can we can leave the debate over prostitution for another day uh, or sex work for another day. But um, you, know, you have law enforcement going towards the source of of you know sex work and prostitution to the extent they're trying to shut it down, um, and they start finding kids, you know. And and it's not for them not difficult to just see the massive volume, even when our case was going. When I would speak about our case, you know, seminars or after talking about what we were doing, I would usually go whatever city I was in. I would go and pull the number of ads uh, in that for that city in the last 24 hours, and you're talking dozens or hundreds of ads that are blatantly for sex work, and and they weren't. It was clear as day with the pictures and the language. So if you're the law enforcement, you know that's where you go. You quickly realize that this is the largest source of of um, online, you know, sex ads in the country by far, by leaps and bounds, especially once Craigslist shuts down. So it just naturally attracted everyone's attention because, you know, that's where the ads were at. Um, and I, you know, I should add in, in with that, you have to appreciate that trafficking in general has, has evolved. It used to be, you know, before the internet really took off, you had to be on the street. You know, so for law enforcement, it's it's more difficult to stop it or find it because it's on the street. Once you get it online, right, and that's the the major source of it now, is it's pretty easy for law enforcement to go and see where all this is coming from, right? The ads are there, um, and and the problem, of course, when it's online, is you don't have to be on the street anymore. You don't have to be on a corner anymore. You have an ad, and you can have an apartment or have a hotel room. And with one ad, people respond and they just keep coming to the same place. You don't have to move. You just stay in the same place and people come to you. You don't have to go to them. And so that's, you know, it just it quickly becomes, you just see it. You know, it's, it's, you see it with your own eyes, the dozens or hundreds of ads for one city. Yeah, Renee, if I can add to that, because I think, you know, to the question of kind of how do we get, in, how did we get involved? How do lawyers get involved? You know, for us, it started just like uh, most of our cases. You know, family comes through the door uh, and and presents this this really difficult situation that they're going through. And in this case, it's just like Jason described. It's my 13 year old daughter. Uh, in this case, it was there was uh, three girls, a 12, uh, two 12 year. I believe it. No, you know, it was a 12 year old, a 13 year old, and a 15 year old. But uh, my daughters uh, ran away from home. Uh, we eventually found them on this website. 
uh, and they were being sold for sex for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, I think everybody in our office, frankly, um, this was 2011, uh, at least I can speak for myself, I'd never even heard of Backpage. And so you go right to the website and Jason, I don't know if you had the same experience, but you go to the website and you, I think you did, because I think we talked about this, and you go to the escort section and right there in front of you, uh, this is 2011, just blatant ads for sex. And when you look at the pictures of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of girls, because uh, frankly, it's, it's mostly girls, at least at that time, that's what I remember seeing, at least half of them to us clearly looked underage. I mean, just clearly. And I think that's the important distinction because again, you can go on a site and see people blatantly advertising sex work and that's not what is criminal in this case. Well, it is, but that's not what we're here to debate. It's that there were children involved and no matter what arguments people try to make, children cannot consent. No matter what the child says, children cannot consent to these pictures being taken and being available for the rest of their lives. It's, it's the underage aspect that got you all involved, correct? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, Renee, yeah, and Renee, I mean, I, look, you know, I think we're all going to keep saying it over and over again because we realize there's a healthy debate out there about how, what do you do with the sex worker industry? And so I want to honor that. Um, and, I, you know, we're in Seattle, which I, I think for a while, at least, Seattle was very progressive in its, its attempts to uh, on approaching this issue. Um, but even with that said, if, if you're law enforcement, whether you're in Seattle or elsewhere, there is so much um, of, of, I'm going to say of this out there, but of, of sex work out there and, and trafficking. And so if you're the police, you can't, it's a fire hose. And, and so for them, for law enforcement, really their focus, I'll say is, I'm going to say triage, hope that's not an offensive way to put it, but they're, you know, they look and they're trying to protect children because you can't, you know, if, if let's just, let's just put aside the healthy debate on sex work for a minute. If you're in a law enforcement and you're trying to, you can't stop at all, right? There's just too much of it in a city like Seattle. And so what do you do? You try to at least protect the children and, and look for children. And like Vinny said, you look at these ads, right? If you're driving around in a, in a police car, mm, you may not be able to tell who's, who are the kids or it's harder to tell who are the kids. You're looking at these pictures and, and especially the language that came with the pictures, which we'll talk about later, you know, law enforcement's going, this is so blatantly obvious that these are people that are underage, girls that are underage. Um, like Vinny said, that we, you don't see a lot of boys or men, but um, so that's, you know, that's what they're seeing. And then for us, just to add, you know, you asked how do the cases come to us and to others? Um, yeah, then he's right. I mean, we were asked, there was a criminal defense lawyer um, in in our area in Tacoma who had a, a few cases brought, you know, where some moms came to him and, and asked for help. And, and then he came to our firm because we've, we've represented abuse survivors, sex, child sexual abuse survivors for a very long time and came and said, hey, would you guys take a look at this and see if you can help? And so my personal experience was, I like Vinny said, I'd never heard of Backpage.com. And so I said, okay, sure, I'll look. And I, I pulled the website up, and I'm in my office. And um, my computer monitor faces a glass door. And 
I pull up the escort section of the to the Seattle section of Backpage.com, and the images are or just, I mean, nudity, just just off the charts. And you know, this is not funny, but our receptionist came walking to my office and saw what was on the screen. Um, my point is, you could just see the look on her face of going, "What are you doing?" And and you know, my point is, this was so visually just obvious and atrocious and blatant of what was going on that, you know, someone just walked by my office was going, wait, what are you looking at? Right. Um, and that was for me when I, like Vinny said, the first time I, I didn't even know Backpage existed. I didn't know there was anything like that. And, and you just look at it and go, how, how is this possible? How can this be legal? And, and that's when we had our first foray into, you know, looking at the law on this and, and seeing, you know, how was this possible? How did they think it was possible, which is section 230. So the family of this 13-year-old comes in and reports this to you. Where do you begin and how do you start to unpack this? I, I'm a child of the 90s, right? So dot-com, internet, really, I know I'm not Al Gore, but um, you know, the internet really came to its prime when I was a kid, teenager, and then college. So um, I actually remember... Um, the CDA, because I, I was one of those young people that had a dot-com startup back in the 90s before the crash. And and I actually remember it because um, we were worried. We had a website where we had message boards, and we were worried about getting sued for defamation if someone came and posted a you know something defamatory about someone using our message boards. And so I actually remember the CDA, because they passed this new law um, that was intended to give websites websites immunity from lawsuits for content posted by third parties the whole idea with this young internet was to say gosh this is great but you're not going to be able to use it for its full potential if if you have to be worried about what people can what people post um and so for me you know that was the i say that because that was the question personally was um okay gosh this can't be okay you know this is a website how do you sue a website for this conduct that's blatantly, blatantly illegal and that they're profiting from, right? It, it's on some level, you this wouldn't be okay, but you could imagine a world where message board and people just post whatever they want, you know, and, and there's illegal stuff on there, but it adds to it when you're profiting off of it, right? And, and you obviously know it's illegal. So that was where we started. I, and I, I, pulled up, you know, the legal research website, Westlaw, and, and started researching how do you sue a website. And there were hundreds of cases, including cases involving Backpage, including cases involving Craigslist, where the courts had, had thrown everyone out and said, sorry, uh, you can't sue websites for content posted. Now, you've mentioned the CDA, and just so we're all talk, all on the same page, can you explain what that is first, and then it sounds like it it really would have put a barrier in front of any litigation. So what liabilities are there under the CDA, and how do you begin to overcome them? So uh, if you want to look it up, look up 47 USC 230, and you'll see a bunch of legalese. But what it boils down to is uh, kind of as Jason was describing a minute ago, uh, websites, generally speaking, under this immunity provision, cannot be sued for uh, content. In most cases, it was considered, you know, the, the concern was over defamation, but any sort of tortious content 
that's posted on their website by a third party, uh, you've got to go sue the third party. Go sue the poster. You can't sue the website, uh, which was very, very unique uh, because as most of us uh, probably know, even non-lawyers, uh, that's not how it works for, for print publications, right? They have some standard to make sure what they're posting has some validity or reliability or isn't, isn't tortious in nature. And I think all of us, you know, can appreciate the need to have different rules that apply online to websites so that you, you can unlock the potential. Um, you know, like I said earlier, eBay might have a problem if they could constantly be sued for someone selling counterfeit goods. Um, but that's where we get to back page where you go, you look at this and just go, but this isn't, this isn't okay. This isn't what we were intending to do. And there's a lot of smart people out there. You know, first of all, it's not what the, the CDA, the Communications Decency Act, that's not what it was intended to prevent uh, or to allow, I should say. Uh, and so you look at it and just go, this, this, this can't be right. But then you see these hundreds of cases saying, yeah, that's right. You can do whatever the heck you want. Can't be sued for it. And, and that's where we kind of started our uh, multi-year uh, journey through the, uh, the courts. Yeah, Jason, if I can add to that, I think that's a great point. The irony uh, of the Communications Decency Act being used by a website like Backpage, uh, the, reason they, the reason they called it the Communications Decency Act, because at the time in the mid-90s, uh, if you look at some of the legislative history, they talk about wanting to prevent the, webs uh, the internet from becoming this sort of uh, lawless red light district and encouraging websites to moderate and to do things uh, with the protection of this immunity to try to filter and um, you know, take content down or, or whatever they might do to try to clean up their websites uh, so they had some control and wouldn't have to worry about actually getting sued for uh, improperly removing uh, content from others. So, so really the whole purpose of the Communications Decency Act uh, in part was actually to protect kids too. Uh, and so really, um, as we looked at all this in 2011, I mean, the irony was was immediately, you know, it was immediately right there front and center. So, Jason, you mentioned that you were sitting at your computer screen and that you pulled up all of these ads, which were pretty graphic and, and rather shocking. But we just had the discussion about CDA. There's nothing you can do about them. So what made the light bulb go off for you in this investigation? of how do we get around this? And what did you learn about how people were able to post these? Yeah, so I, I yeah, you, you see the ads and you just know this isn't okay. And then you look at the law and, and, and what you realize, the CDA says that websites can't be held liable for content posted by third parties. But if a website helps to develop the content, then it can be held liable. And, and so once I saw that, you, you start to wonder, well, what, how is this website, Backpage.com, how is it helping sex traffickers post these ads? Are they doing anything to make this content their own? And, and so what I did is I, I said, well, let's, let's look at the steps here to post an ad. And so I, I went through the steps of posting an ad in the escort section and obviously a fake ad. <clears throat> and um what you realize quickly is they, they had these things called posting rules and content requirements. And what struck me was they didn't stop at just saying, you know, don't post ads for sex, don't post, you know, don't traffic children, something like that. 
they literally got to the level of telling you in the posting rules or content requirements what words and phrases not to use. And so the problem was you read those and then you looked at what was on the website. And I mean, virtually all the ads at the time violated those posting rules and content requirements. And, and so to me, it was really apparent that, and, and not all of them did though. Okay. And, and so it's like, something's wrong here. These guys are basically, at least our view is these guys are coaching what backpage.com is coaching sex traffickers, how to post ads that, that they wouldn't have to take down or that law enforcement wouldn't realize is trafficking children, right? When you start telling people, don't use coded words for sex, don't, don't say blowjob, don't say certain words. What you're really telling people is like, Hey, you know, wink, wink, post your, your ad trafficking, trafficking someone, but do it this way. Because if you do it this way, we can keep it up and profit off your ad and, and you can do your thing. If you do this other way, if you post, you know, if you use other words, we're going to have to take it down. And, and that's, we thought that's your first step in the right direction. Cause you're basically, you know, you may not be writing the ads yourself, but if you're whispering in someone's ear as they write the ad, Oh, don't say that, say this, you're effectively creating, helping to create the content. And that was the theory we started with to get our foot in the door. Um, what we eventually found was, was shocking compared to, to our initial theory. That, that's actually not the theory that we actually, um, legal theory that we actually ended up prevailing, but it was how we, we got our foot in the door. So I want to put a pin in the, the legal theory that you did prevail on, but Vinny, I want to talk to you. You mentioned that this all started because the family of a 13-year-old had come in and she was missing. Do you want to take a minute to just discuss some of some of the clients that you saw come in with their families and what were these families going through? What were these kids going through? Yeah, when we got involved in these cases, we met with the family of a 12-year-old, the family of a 13-year-old, and the family of a 15-year-old uh, whose daughters had all been swept up and uh, trafficked on the Backpage website. Uh, the, the daughters had been recovered recently. They were uh, getting treatment. They were you know, starting to kind of try to get back to life as usual. But of course, um, you know, you'd, you'd meet with, you'd meet with the families. And I got to say, just someone who, who works with abuse survivors on a daily basis, there was something different uh, with these girls there. It's, it was, I mean, it was really, I mean, it was almost like their souls had been ripped out. I mean, and you could, you could feel it. It was, and you could only imagine or at least for us, it became much more obvious why these cases felt so different. And it was because you came to realize all of these girls uh, who thought, I think when their trafficking started that they had some level of control over what they were doing. They decided they were gonna kind of, you know, run away from home and, you know, met up with some, you know, you know older teenagers or, or younger, you know, traffickers in their twenties who were really, seemed really cool and nice and hey we're going to take you in and we're going to help you out next thing you know um they're being forced to have sex with men you know 10 15 20 times a day um which is you know i think at first we we heard those types of numbers and we thought boy i'm sure it's really bad who know, you know is that are, are we are these numbers accurate and i'll tell you what now having talked to dozens of families uh it is it is without question 
the second that these ads go live, the phone doesn't stop ringing. The demand uh, for for sex uh, on the Backpage website was just impossible to overstate. And so, um, so these girls, next thing you know, they're in apartments or motels or whatever it is. And obviously there's, or, or as you might assume, there's drugs involved, there's violence involved, there's all sorts of coercion. And, um, and then eventually, uh, I guess maybe a bit of irony as well, through Backpage, they're located and then law enforcement goes in and rescues these girls. So, um, you know, meeting with them early on with the families, uh, we worked with the mothers, I think the most, and the mothers were just incredibly inspiring in the way they, just like maybe any mother would do, but it was pretty amazing to kind of be part of it firsthand and just see how they really took charge and they were not going to back down. And, and frankly, um, if I can, you know, pat ourselves on the back. I mean, they were in the right, they were talking to the right lawyers, if that's what if they were looking for a fight. So, you know, we knew early on, we're gonna, we're gonna at least make a bunch of noise. Uh, we're gonna, you know, shed light on what has apparently been happening for years and years and years, uh, all right under our noses. And we had no idea, at least I had no idea. And everybody I talked to, all my friends and my circles seem to have very little idea that this was happening all across the country uh, to families of all different backgrounds, uh, big cities, small cities, rural, urban, you name it, uh, it was everywhere. And I think some of how you described your clients at first is really crucial to hit that point home uh, to something we said earlier, children can never consent because they have no idea what they're consenting to. So even if these were young women who ran away initially, you have no idea in the long run what is facing you. And that is why we as a society have decided children can't consent to certain things. And this is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. So the title of this podcast is Parallel Justice. And I think this is the perfect case to to really walk through that because there is currently an active criminal case happening and there was a civil case that you all pursued. It might be helpful to go back to kind of where Jason's, we're all sitting around thinking, okay, we know we've got this really bad case law. Uh, we know we've got this difficult federal immunity defense that's gonna be uh, front and center immediately after we file the case. What can we, do to possibly argue that this just isn't right and that the immunity shouldn't apply. And for that, uh, you know, fortunately, while the websites were having great success from 1996 over the next 10 years, uh, in 2008, uh, there was a, a case called roommates.com out of California that came out and really kind of upended the momentum. In, it, it, fortunately, uh, to kind of hit the brakes a little bit on just how far this immunity applied. And in the roommate's case, without getting too deep into the weeds, essentially you just had a website that uh, was trying to help partner people up as roommates. And, uh, you know, whether innocent or not, um, they had included in their uh, web profile, if you wanted to use the website to find roommates, you'd have to enter all this uh, information that violates housing discrimination laws. And so what the court ended up saying was, hey, you're not just 
a neutral conduit. You're not just this innocent website that's sitting there and people are, are using it or misusing it. You're directly inducing that information. And therefore, you're, you're at least partly responsible for it being there. So it was through that inducement theory that we started to look at the posting rules and said, hey, they're kind of doing like roommates.com. They're sort of like instructing traffickers how to write these ads and kind of soliciting them to use their website for that illegal purpose. And that's exactly what we did in the complaint was we highlighted the posting ads, or I'm sorry, the posting rules. And we included, I think, uh, one day's worth of postings from the Seattle area, which I believe Jason was, was what, 2000 pages uh, of, of ads, uh, just from one day in the Seattle area just to give the court a sense of what we're talking about here. And it ties in what I just said a minute ago is we went in thinking the content rules and posting requirements, whispering in the ear that that was our theory, right? They're telling people what to post. And we went through the motion of the dismiss. They cited 230. We go up to the Washington Supreme Court. Washington Supreme Court says, no, we're gonna let them do discovery to see if Backpage is helping to edit these ads. We then get all this discovery and it shows, it gets into the moderation, it gets into the deleting stuff. It's like, oh my so God, they, they are literally, you know, if it says, you know, pardon me here, but it says Amber Alert, Amber Alert, come see you, M, enjoy young Tasha tonight. The filters would literally strip out. So it would just, it would change, it would take out Amber Alert, Amber Alert, Amber Alert, and it would switch come see you, M to C-O-M-E. It would take out young. So now you have an ad that says, come see Tasha. And no, it, it was an ad for child. You ripped out Amber Alert, you switched come to come, and then they would publish it, right? So there's all that stuff. We're getting all this stuff in discovery because a trial court in Pierce County, Washington, lets us get discovery. We come to find out the U.S. Senate is investigating Backpage and for the first time in 20 years has issued an order holding um, someone holding Backpage in contempt of, of Congress. It hasn't happened in 20 years because they won't cough up discovery, we call up one of the legislative aides for Senator Portman and said, and said, send us a subpoena. So I literally have the United States subpoena. The United States Senate issues a subpoena to us, which we <laughs> give them all the goodies we have. That's what caused them to be shut. That's what the U.S. Senate used to shut them down. It's what the feds used to then go get the, to get all the stuff. And then you're off to the race. It wasn't the Senate that shut them down. It was the FBI. But that's what the Senate primarily relied on in its report is the stuff we gave them. And then that's what causes the shutdown. And that eventually is what leads to the, the criminal prosecution. That is absolutely amazing. And this has been a fantastic discussion so far, but that is unfortunately all the time we have for this week. Next week, please join us on Parallel Justice, where Vinny and Jason will discuss more about how they took down Backpage and some of the cases that they worked on. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. 
This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.